Dr. Coons, so I have an opening question to start off with about, you know, why is now a good time to talk about the rise of the non-denominational phenomena, or perhaps we just should call it the decline of the denominational phenomena. Um, but wouldn't you know, it's just irony of ironies that on the way to this conversation, I literally had a speck in my eye I could not get out of my eye. Like I, I cannot, I'm not kidding. I'm dousing myself <laughs> with like, like eye drops because I can't yeah. use my left eye because there's a speck in my eye. No matter what I do, I can't get it out. And, nice. and I don't know if anyone else lives in symbolism land like I do, but you know, I, I have to kind of look at the sky <laughs> and say, you know, hmm. um, and then, you know, my opening question then is really, you know, uh, <laughs> Trump's arrested, you know, they're going to make us eat bugs and, and, uh, viruses. And, and let's talk about the, the fall of denominationalism and the rise of the non-denom. Why, why now? Why now? Because this is a story that partly because it's being neglected, but, but also partly because it's a story about how God's kingdom has largely has shrunk. That's going to be the overall story that we tell over the next couple episodes really could not be more important, but it is obviously going to be neglected by any kind of news cycle, however short or long, because it's not a story you can really tell quickly. And it's not easily and immediately politically useful. So that also concerns something that I think if you're listening to the show and you haven't yet picked up on you, you should, or, or you ought to have at some point, which is that when we're talking about things that are political, or we're talking about things that are of immediate relevance, like we talked about Maui, immediate contemporary relevance, that what we're actually talking about is something that always has a longer story. And if you don't know anything about that longer story, you also don't really know what you're dealing with. And the reason is one of probably the most popular delusions under which people labor is that if they figure out the right solution or this gets even worse, usually the younger the demographic skews because they have had even less acquaintance with difficult things requiring time so that you just press a button or pick something and then it should materialize the way that you want is that if you come up with the right set of answers, that when those are applied, that will take a very small amount of time. And the reason that that delusion can continue to flourish is because people don't know anything about anything that has taken very long, either to develop or to go away. So when we're talking about something that we're going to start about a hundred years before present, you're going back to the very early 1920s and and even earlier, we're talking about something that has taken that long to develop into the shape that it has taken and therefore may take that long to take on a different shape. Mm -hmm. Or if you're listening to the story and you don't like the way that the story goes, for the story to change, you have to be willing to set up things so that in a hundred years it is different. And that is something that when you read, for instance, the scriptures, a lot of times people are ignorant of because they have a very, very loose sense of when things happened. But if you just get a basic chronology going, 
you can see that even between the prophecies of Malachi and the opening of, you know, the next page in your Bible, the opening of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, you're dealing with hundreds of years. So if this is a timescale in which God often operates, then if it's not one that we're familiar with at all, let alone comfortable with, then we're also going to be, I think, much more impatient. And I don't, I don't mean by patient that you just are doing nothing in the present, but I mean that you are willing for what you are doing or what you are saying or how you are being to have an effect over centuries rather than over a couple news cycles or a single news cycle. Hey, you gotta set set the hook deep if you want to catch big fish. Um, so my follow up then, I I don't know if I'm going where you're going then here. I'm sure I'll I'll follow you, you know, ultimately. Okay. But but my real thought after looking at your list today, and, and I'm not gonna you know give all that away. We'll get there. Yeah. But you know, focusing on what does it mean that the non denom has effectively replaced the mainline, and what was the mainline? I think the most important question that spawned for me is, well, none of this matters unless I know who the Antichrist is. And unless that's my operational framework for understanding the role of the church in with and around this Roman beast that okay. that we confess, right? So is that in line or am I just jumping into a deeper pool off the side? Okay. Yeah. So let me let me talk about this theologically and then talk about it historically. So specifically theologically identifying the Roman papacy as the Antichrist, which the Lutheran confessions do, as well as several other Protestant confessions of the 16th and 17th centuries, does not mean that the spirit of Antichrist is not best in other ways. Amen. And that is really crucial when you're analyzing a majority Protestant country, such as America, by a vast majority is 100 years ago, or in an episode that we'll do in a while, because I'm just kind of getting my hands on the material on the way that communism infiltrated the Lutheran church in East Germany um, when it was a separate country, being overwhelmingly the Lutheran majority, very small union presence or reform presence and small Catholic presence. So when you're looking at a situation that doesn't specifically involve the Roman papacy, if you want to understand what it means that many antichrists have gone out, you <laughs> are looking for a situation where either through open confession, as you usually get when it grows enough, or earlier than that, most often, and this is to speak historically, when the truth of Christ is opposed, but not in an open manner, you have to be sensitive to those things because there are places and times in which the Roman Catholic Church does, just doesn't matter very much, or it matters in a way that is limited, very limited. And that's that's definitely true for America until about the 1950s. Right. And which point it, it really starts to change then, right? And right. They're, well, they're... yeah. What changes is that demographically, Roman Catholics gain as a percentage of the population partly due to birth rate with some people maintaining that the you know baby boom of the boomers the baby boom is largely a catholic baby boom i'm not entirely clear on that and i i don't really believe it <laughs> i like 85% don't don't quite believe that but the other issue is that roman catholics also become a mainstream not mainline not we can explain the difference 
a mainstream American church after the Second World War in the same way that Jews, who had been religiously very strange to most Americans, most of our history, also become mainstream. That, in, in the case of Jews, that has nothing to do with their percentage of the population, which actually falls from about 2% back then to about 1% today. But it has to do with presence in media and you know, are are we supposed to accept this or not accept this? And so that's kind of a different story from a hundred years ago, and certainly before that, where America is an overwhelmingly Protestant country. So yeah. that's why mainstream doesn't even mean when it is different from, but it definitely doesn't mean mainline, which is really reserved only for certain historic Protestant churches. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot there. Um, I think your distinction of many antichrists and relying on John's definitions here uh, is really helpful for the modern theologian, even though the Lutheran confessions do use that term antichrist to refer to the man of lawlessness. And certainly the man of lawlessness is filled with the spirit of antichrist. Uh, But then we apply what is said of the man of lawlessness often to that term antichrist and lose the capacity to see that, you know, in any given herd, the evil patriarch who denies Christ and tries to worship Baal is effectively the spirit of the antichrist, right? He denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that Jesus Christ is Lord and this kind of thing. Um, so I think that's that's a super helpful takeaway. Um, just the other piece in this, though, for me still yeah. is that, you know, at that point in time, 100 years ago, when, you know, Protestantism is America, America really does believe that the Roman papacy effectively still is the church of the Antichrist. And so uh, the the mainline phenomena distinguished from mainstream and from the yeah. non-denom phenomena um, comes out of a world that was steadfastly focused in an us versus them relationship with regard to the reformation of the church. And somehow in the American descent of the next hundred years, the story you're going to tell, uh, what we end up doing is squabbling amongst ourselves while Rome then just kind of waits and then comes and takes over, takes over. And yeah. so I see the Antichrist in the Roman papacy's office as man of lawlessness, still very much at work here in like an epoch shifting kind of way. We don't have to go there at all because I think the details of, of your story are going to be um, really where, where the meat is. But, you know, as we're just painting big framework here, yeah, the, the loss of denominationalism to me means to some extent admitting that if we don't reform the Catholic Church, we're not quite sure what we're doing and we just fight. I think that the story that we're telling about American Protestantism becomes certainly after the Second Vatican Council, also Roman Catholicism's story, ah, and that yeah, the, the common the common crisis is a crisis of authority, which the Roman Catholic Church has an organizational answer to, and that just gets tweaked by Vatican II theoretically, and greater collegiality among the bishops in consultation with the Bishop of Rome. But it's not fundamentally changed. Therefore, the the bedrock missing the Greek wordplay there in Matthew 16, the bedrock of Peter's chair remains. The problem there is that after the 1940s, the Roman Catholic Church begins to deny what it had affirmed along with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And in contradistinction to mainline Protestantism, which was the inerrancy of the scriptures. So... The issue here is that even though today you can be a Roman Catholic and believe in Darwinian evolution and 
not have to believe every word of scripture and deal with what that what consequences that has okay great so you've adapted to the modern world in that way but that denial of authority is going to have basic unforeseen and destructive consequences for anybody's church no matter what organizational capacities they have on the books or are actually practicing so roman catholicism is going to come to ape mainline protestantism in time and mm -hmm. in practice mm -hmm. the reason that we're starting with mainline protestantism is because that explains where the nonanoms which are the vast majority of people who are actually going to a church on a sunday morning in america today are generally going especially weekly attenders and people that could be identified on any kind of social or political or religious survey as conservative in the various senses that that might have in politics or social issues or religion roman catholics conversely and and i'm i'm not talking about converts because converts are always a weird subset of any church they're not normal <laughs> they're not going to be normal they, they just they just aren't most people are going to grow up in the religion that they're practicing as adults if they came to that religion at any point if you talk to a roman catholic that was raised that you know even went to catholic school in you know whatever new jersey or arizona or something you ask them what they actually believe about not just stuff that the catholic church doesn't really actually functionally talk about from a pulpit like birth control but what do they believe about abortion or lots of other things they don't believe what they're supposed to believe so what we're talking about and the reason that we look at history so frequently is that history like examining one's own life does not permit the same kind of hubris that just talking abstractly does because then you have to ask yourself if you're a roman catholic why do roman catholics sound like mainline protestants so often why why do they have the same attitudes why are they why are they okay with abortion generally why are they like this why don't they care why don't they go to church right so this series is partly to just explain where non-denoms came from because a hundred years ago there are churches that you could now say are non-denominational but they're few and far between and they're certainly not a self-conscious movement and they're nowhere near even a plurality of american christians but it's also to say that when we look especially at churches that are not our own historically that should also cause us to think to ourselves why is it like this or <laughs> if i'm looking at what's actually happening to them not just what they say what is actually happening to us not just what we say so that's that's the overarching purpose and in looking at mainline protestants i think for reasons that i'm going to explain we're not just looking at someone else's problem we're looking at a problem we all have to one degree or another including to down to today including non-denominational churches that 30 years ago would have been reliably solid on certain things that we'll discuss so to ask why is it like this and to ask what is happening to us uh, means that you can't be the center of history you can't be the heart of your own insight uh, right. You must have a capacity to uh, see the speck in your brother's eye, right? And and for that, you have to be willing to be wrong. And 
that in in my experience as a, a Missouri Synod pastor has been it's one of the hardest things to talk about. Like we aren't really allowed to be wrong. Like that's kind of our game. Right. Yeah. You know? I know. And it's a bit, it's a bit, yeah. um, jaggish. Can I use that? Does that work for everybody? Does everyone know what a jag is? It's jaggish and, and it, it bothers even our friends. And so that, you know, we even make jokes about it on YouTube. There's a joke about it. You can find the joke. <laughs> you know, we're, we're that, we're that, um, unaware of how we impact the room that when we say what's happened to us, we don't ever think to first ask, well, there's a reason things are like this before we got here and us just kind of shouting in the vacuum or the, the storm in German doesn't, doesn't do a lot. Right. Missouri Senate Lutherans in certain ways behave more. Obviously they don't believe just like, but they behave more like Roman Catholics than many other American Christians. They have, usually a from birth generations long loyalty that is then cultivated through a pretty careful and definite system of education, both the confirmation process and also the nation's largest set of Protestant parochial schools, you know, and this kind of thing. And then if Missouri did you, did you Lutheran's on in the middle of that, did you intentionally, I, I, I kind of did. I kind of did because the thing that gets tiresome about this is that lines get repeated over and over and over again, even as the actual thing that those lines are supposed to refer to changes, right? So if if I say, well, I went to Catholic school, well, that doesn't mean at all the same thing that it did in 1955, either in form or content. So you just get repetition, repetition, repetition. What does that actually, what does that mean? And unless you're asking yourself what is actually occurring or what has actually occurred, not just what am I asserting, or what is on paper, then you're never going to find the truth. So when that gets repeated, or when a Missouri Synod Lutheran moves somewhere new, and with trust in the system that was set up for him says, well, I'll just go to the Missouri Synod Church in town and find something completely different than what he grew up with, which is something that happens to Roman Catholics too. You have to ask yourself, why is this actually occurring? Not let me pretend like nothing's wrong. <laughs> yeah, or, or what is what is this thing that we've called a denomination or that we've allowed ourselves to be called in which we've trusted to re- retain a certain level of orthodoxy but the scaffolding doesn't you know doesn't really keep it working yeah. and and does that always mean christianity has ceased to be in those places so i think in some cases you might go to a church and find you don't like what's going on but it's because they're reading the bible uh, and that is, that's the way that it's happening there. Their reformation in that space, um, isn't going to be exactly like, you know, Walther's church in, in 1880, you know, as much as, you know, maybe that's what you want to work for. Maybe that's your high point pinnacle of, of, of Gloria when you sing it. Um, but it's not going to be there everywhere next week. And, and the, the idea that we could pull that off. Yeah. I don't know what everyone who grew up before the eighties grew up with as expectations about the way the world works. But I just don't know how they thought that was even possible. Of course I'm living with the media stream, right? Main stream versus main line. And maybe that's where we need to go. You mean, you mean possible like to go back in time and achieve something that was done before? No, I don't know how, like if we were to right now set up um, the idea of, okay, let's find unity in the church, right? Yeah. Um, The LCMS alone. And you and I have a magical wand, right? Um, 
the capacity without the magical wand to get everybody to perform the exact same ritual in the exact same way while we're all doing a million other things of what we want to do with our apps and our movies and our games and all this stuff and everybody in each in the congregation is also as widely diversified in their opinions and thoughts um how could we possibly have the same thing on sunday morning in the same place unless it's from the bible right even with the hymnal being the same um you find in hymnal churches you find guys that are doing it like we're going to save the hymnal and then go all the way back Right. And you have guys that are, we're not going to do the hymnal ever because the church dies if you don't, if you, if you keep the hymnal. Right. And then we're that widespread. What is the world in which that doesn't happen to people who stop reading their Bible? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right. So that, yeah. So, okay. So that has to do with something that in talking about the main line, let me explain that. But let me, before I just explain what the term means, say this is that the reason to talk about the main line and the reason it's not a cause for anyone else's rejoicing is because what happened to them could and does happen to everybody else. <sighs> okay. It doesn't have to have the same ending. There are certain decisions that they're going to make. They're going to mean their death knell, but what happened to them and what is happening to them could happen to everybody else because they are larger factors than merely internalized theological debates. Uh-huh. So the fact, for instance, that the people in the pews today in any church are consuming such an enormous variety of media, giving them an enormous variety of ideas and ways of talking and ways of existing that have and have to do with more than the liturgy. It's part of why people do things the way that they do them, or they are very comfortable today getting an idea kind of out of nowhere and then trying to implement it. And it might even be called traditional worship, but it's not actually traditional. It's not actually handed down in a way. It's just as radical as getting rid of the hymnals would be. If you bring in something no one's ever seen or done before, that's not traditional in its own way. I'm just speaking in terms of the simple meanings of words. Because the main line in its story, which is a story largely about what is now called Since 1989, a guy named William Hutchison called them the Seven Sisters. Those are seven denominations. They have some predecessors that 100 years ago were separated. but And then then there are things like the Reformed Church in America that are not part of this seven, but have their own very mainline-looking history and theology. But the Seven Sisters, some of them are going to be very familiar, some of them less, depending on where you live or how you grew up. The one that has the widest coverage and always has in American society is the, is what's now called the United Methodist Church. It was then called the Methodist Episcopal Church, but don't worry about that right now. United Methodist Church, we're just using the modern names. The American Baptist Churches USA, which are the Northern Baptists. They're just not called Northern Baptists anymore, but we still have Southern Baptists. That's, that's the difference. The Disciples of Christ, who are a Campbellite movement kind of your moderate slash liberal, depending on the time and place, wing of the Campbellites, churches of Christ are going to be your more conservative ones. And then there's others. You've also got the Presbyterian Church USA, PCUSA churches that is going to come together finally under that form in the 80s. But they're largely the Northern Presbyterians, largely about 100 years ago. You've also got the ELCA Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. That's several different churches a hundred years ago, but 
You've also got one that is the same thing that it was then, which is the Episcopal Church, then called the Protestant Episcopal Church USA. Do I have seven, Jonathan? Do you have these written down? Um, yeah, there's six of them there. You got you got UMC, American Baptist, Disciples of Christ, uh, Presbyterian Church USA, ELCA, oh. Episcopal USA. Are you thinking of, it's going to be United Churches in Christ? United Church under- of Christ. Yeah. United okay. Church of Christ. Yeah. yeah. Which 100 years ago is the Congregational Church, which is New England descended Congregationalists. And then on the other side, the Evangelical and Reformed Church, which is where the Niebuhr brothers are going to come out of. That's the Prussian Union translated to America. I just want to. I just want to go on record yeah. as, as that I that I knew the answer to the missing one. I feel pretty good. And then that's and awesome. The, the Campbellites are um, those are the guys that don't sing, right? This is that correct? Disciples of Christ are going to sing. Generally, churches of Christ usually are not. Yeah. So so it's a split within them. Okay. It, cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Are and, they still around? Are the non-singers still around? Like, yeah. Do they make converts and are they growing? Well, an interesting thing is that you can find it. A, chi- a, a, a rebellious child, an angry sister, in some cases, depending on how you want to look at it, an upset mother in the case of the Missouri Synod vis-a-vis part of the ELCA, which is a split from the Missouri Synod in the 70s. And you can say, you can say there's some sibling or multiple siblings or relatives for all of these denominations. The reason those seven are significant in and of themselves is because if you look at American history, you can just look at who founded most colleges. Probably one of the seven sisters will be at the root of it. You can look at who were the presidents, who were the congressmen, who were the generals, what churches were they raised in, or did they belong to, or did they join eventually? And you can find one of the seven sisters. So the role here is not a role of theological total agreement in the sense that America has a very English reformational history of having a wide variety of views within a general Protestant framework. That's America because that was England before it was America. That didn't get contained in a single organizational church for some of the reasons we laid out in the myth of America set up stuff, but that is America. And so that's, that's where our colleges come from. And that's where our ideas come from, and that's where our people come from historically, and it's what American Roman Catholics are reacting to, and it's what if you are not mainline, which is kind of a strange term, but it seems to usually refer to the particular train uh, line out mm-hmm. of Philadelphia going into its suburbs where these churches were would all be represented in those communities. If you're not mainline, you are reacting to, or perhaps aspiring to be, or defining yourself over against the mainline, which is one way to spot what is your literal or figurative state church. The mainline will also determine largely the shape of public education down to about the 1960s. So the generic Protestantism that you might find in a public school or in a presidential inauguration or at a football game is also historically expressed by or normed by and you know ministers on TV or even down to the Simpsons are portrayed as in buildings and investments that look like mainline Protestantism. Right, the state religion of a sort for a time. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes that's more or less explicit. Like 
there's a time in which the chaplaincy in the in the United States Navy is overwhelmingly dominated by Episcopal priests. So sometimes that really becomes obvious, but it's also obvious when, for example, we get a the Lutheran hour precisely because the mainline churches can get together in what was then called the Federal Council of Churches and produce something called the Protestant hour. That's why it's the blank hour. The Lutheran hour is an aping of something that came before it called the Protestant hour. And they said, but you're Lutherans. We don't really understand what kind of Lutheran you are, but you're Protestants. So why don't you just try to put a guy in the rotation on the Protestant hour? And they were like, well, we can't do that because we don't, you know, like, but all of that is defined <laughs> over against the main line. And what's significant about a hundred years ago is that a hundred years ago, and this is measured, some things about religious life are very hard to measure in America because we, we generally don't ask people questions about them. That again is a really big function of this is kind of up to you in an English reformational framework. So we're not going to ask you because I'm not going to assume because you have an Italian last name that you're Roman Catholic, you could be Baptist. But there was a survey that began to be done in 1970 in which you have people who were kids 100 years ago answering questions about how they were raised. And the reason that we're starting there is because about 100 years ago, roughly 75 to 80% of people born in the 1910s and 1920s report being raised as what we would now call mainline Protestants. And then everybody else fits into that other depending on what you think they meant, right? It's a little hard, but everybody else is a Catholic or what we would call an evangelical Protestant. And for social purposes, you're going to slot all confessional Lutherans into evangelical Protestants. But America is a mainline Protestant country at that time. That's just kind of normal in the same way that it was normal for, you know, Welsh units in World War I to sing Methodist hymns because... You could kind of well, assume if you were Welsh, you would you would know that stuff. Yeah. yeah so yeah. And, and the Methodism yeah. as sort of a, I mean, as I look at this list um, of these churches again, and I'm sure that the the Calvinist brothers will will hate this idea, but I mean, even the Presbyterian Church USA, I mean, effectively, it is all Methodism. Um, it is all sort of a, a, and I'm applying that very loosely, but the Wesleyan uh, major in the majors, minor in the minors until you let the minors have a seat at the table and <laughs> start to be the majors uh, and they take over um, this, this open handedness that Wesley himself embodied. I think, I don't know that it was evil, but it certainly um, uh, allowed for a softness to the belly, um, which uh, is really, it's the undoing of that entire theology, right? So, you know, you find Methodists who will baptize babies, Methodists who won't baptize babies. And um, that, they're okay with that, right? Anglicanism yeah. ultimately is okay with that. Um, that, and that is America. I mean, that is the, that is the spirit of American Christianity that has. Uh, well, you're going to you're going to detail it how we got yeah, there, but it, no, it, it, it I, defines where we are. I think. I think that's right because the way to look at this a hundred years ago is that a lot of it doesn't include the American South because the American South, both in its racial demographics and therefore also in its religious demographics is unlike the entire rest of the country. Certainly a yeah. hundred years ago, that's true. So I didn't include the Southern Baptist convention, even though the Southern Baptist convention is to most of the American South, even today, what the Roman Catholic church today is to New Jersey or Rhode Island. That is, it is 
functionally the state. It is the normative form of Christianity. Everywhere else, but also in the South, Methodism is prevalent and not just a certain distinctive theology of Wesleyanism about how you are saved and and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live a Christian life, right? And some of that is so prevalent, even in the South, that distinctive things about Southern Christianity, where both Southern Baptists and Southern Presbyterians are historically truly, deeply, and clearly Calvinistic, gets, especially in the SBC, gets lost for a long time. Because in practice, Methodism, in its doctrines of salvation, prevail and are normal. But you're right to notice, too, that the practice of Christianity is determined by the method, what's then called right. the Methodist right. Episcopal so, Church. So right. the methodology of focusing on methodology is why it's called Methodism, right? And even the Lutherans trying to find the right Lutheran theology to make the ecclesiology work so the mission will work with goal malady means is just a form of method. Ism. Strip well, away all the theological bits of it, and this this we can push it back into pragmatism and some of the other yeah. arguments that we've had. But I I can't escape the the simplicity of the word, you know. So, like a a very clear example would be that in America, unless you live in somewhere that is really Catholic or really Lutheran, it's hard to live in somewhere that is really Eastern Orthodox. So I'll just say Catholic or Lutheran. Alaska's if you got live some Russians, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> if you live somewhere very Catholic or very Lutheran, or somewhere like Nebraska that's both, then open communion is not normal. But significantly, pretty much everywhere else in America, mm-hmm. open communion is the normal practice of Christianity. So one reason that that is an issue for every denomination in America, whether they're going to say all are welcome or within a denomination that's supposed to say that we practice closed communion, like the LCMS or the Catholic Church, where I think you can just go up basically and they're they're never going to ask you, which in the LCMS is basically lax practice, then the reason that you have to constantly reinforce that or talk about that is because you're weird. And the reason you're weird is because you're not really following basic Methodist practice. Yeah, that's right. And you, I mean, you could be angry about that. You could be indifferent about that. You could be happy about that, whatever you want to be. But we're talking about what is not about what you, what you want. And so when we're talking about what is, we're saying that even the supposedly Calvinistic Presbyterian church in the United States is what the PCUSA is called a hundred years ago. Different, different thing, not exactly all the same folks, but largely is that, yeah, they're totally influenced by Methodism in a way, in a way that is not true for the state church of Scotland. So I just, I'm just going to be a jerk, but like best practices, baby, it's just best, best methods. Just see it. Okay. That we're all hoping in the wrong stuff and we need to repent that that the methodology and why do we listen why are we doing the show why do people listen to the show a lot of times we're, we're looking for the better method and i'm not saying that there aren't good methods there's good methods yeah. there's bad methods that's true but methodism is like the worship of the method right and i guess if i'm going to do that then i will worship the method of repenting in the name of jesus and asking him to save me <laughs> you know and us today again 
from from the spirit that demands an obedience, that demands a justification by works, that demands a perfection for the future to arrive. There's so many ways that this just is the spirit of the Antichrist. And it takes many Antichrist forms, right? Which is what yeah. we're kind of getting at. Go for it. That melding of, of business, inclu- I mean, the term best practices is a business term. That melding of business with religion is something that a hundred years ago is beginning to happen, but is by no means common. And that's where certain things about non-denominational Christianity today and its imitators, that's a story that's going to, it's going to grow because a hundred years ago, you do have a, you have a very popular book by Bruce Barton that applies Jesus's way of teaching to sales techniques and portrays Jesus as like the greatest businessman. And you also have things that we would now call megachurches, like Amy Semple McPherson's church in Los Angeles. But that's not precisely normal in the sense that what is precisely normal is a certain general trust in the Bible. And that's what's going to break down, particularly in the 20s, in the various manifestations of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. So that trust in the Bible is going to begin to evaporate first among the clergy and then among the laity. But the way of, you know, taking business and then applying it to the church and the church's functioning and how the minister should behave and what the minister should look like and what the church looks like, that's just being born a hundred years ago. I'm thinking on a number of things, uh, the, the breakdown of trust that that creates, but the yeah. um, rule by desk, bureaucracy, Right. Uh, the, yeah, the, like we've talked about. Yep. Yeah, it's the same kind of stuff. And um, the shepherd is sent to do a certain task. Uh, the The sheep themselves are to testify. They are royal priests. There are certainly rights and wrongs. There are there are goods and there are evils. But the confusion of good and evil, wisdom and folly, with successful sales or financial bottom line uh, or even beautiful music and a fancy building and a great youth group. The confusion of those two things I I think is what is the breakdown going on around us. But then, okay, this is where I think we want to, we want to burst up into some of your other stuff. So like, the Missouri Synod, all of its congregations in one form or another are experiencing the crisis that you're alluding to here that happened in the mainland and is coming on now. And in that realm, we nonetheless have these ideas like we're the only church that matters. And that kind of thinking, I think, is going to be central yeah. to any any real good changes we make. So that that has to do with a certain way of looking at the world that we're going to call self-centered, but ironically, because it's self-centered, it is actually very much unable to perceive its own flaws. Even though you think about yourself constantly, or you think only about yourself when you do think you cannot see what is the matter with yourself. So in the case of no one else matters, which is flatly false, what's going on is that among Lutherans, we're making functionally the same error that Roman Catholics make, which is that 
no one else is really church or no one else deserves to exist necessarily. If God fixed everything tomorrow, everyone would be a member of my synod or my church body. And because of that, right, my my synod and my church body as actually constituted, I don't mean like ideally, like you believe, you know, in the invisible church or something, right? But actually they should be a member of this denomination and subscribe to these magazines. Yeah, if you're really tomorrow. a Christian, then you have to stop going to your, you know, non-denom church and join my Missouri Synod Church and learn to worship the way we do. Otherwise you're not really a Christian. Come on. Obviously. Well, I, but that's I the think, attitude, man. I, 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 really I think, I think that w- the reason that we're making the mistake is a little more based in doctrine than an organization than for a Roman Catholic. But the mistake is this, and it's the same, is that no one else actually is a Christian, not just that they should belong to my organization, but that no one else is finally and without a doubt a Christian. And what's happening there is that that means that I don't know or care what's going on with them. Therefore, what is really happening on my end is I don't know or care how Satan is attacking them. And therefore I am blind to how Satan could be attacking me in the same ways. So let me give you an example. When we formally fought over the things over which mainline denominations fought roughly 50 to 40 to 30 years earlier over the doctrine of scripture, largely. That's that's the battleground for most Protestant denominations. And I, I contend Roman Catholics in the 20th century, especially in the middle of the 20th century. When we fought over that, we rather unusually ended up as a group deciding that formally, yes, the Bible is the word of God. It doesn't just contain the word of God. These are formulae that you can find when you go back. Okay. That involved, in a very big way, many people in the Missouri Synod figuring out what had already happened to other groups who had decades earlier denied the scriptures. In order to look at that as an example, you have to think of them as Christians. Because it doesn't matter to me if some group of Muslims is arguing over the inerrancy of the Quran. But in order to learn from them, I have to accept that they are also in Christ. However, I think they might be wrong about the sacraments, right? Or something else. So I have to concede that they are in Christ. And therefore, what is happening to them could also happen to me because Satan wants to attack me. If I therefore can't also see, and these are some of the things that we'll be talking about as we talk about the rise of the non-denom, specifically as opposed to mainliners, we have to be able to see that their formal denial of scripture also had material or you could say practical consequences for the lives of their church. So something we've talked about on the show before that also happens to all of them is that formal denial of scripture always ends up with the church over-determining things because the voice of God gets replaced with the voice of man. And that takes all kinds of different forms that we can discuss, but part of people's disgust with denominations is because of what denominations end up doing when they're no longer believing formally or materially using the scriptures. So if you think that they don't matter, then what you're really doing is closing yourself off from learning from what has happened to them in case the same things are happening to you. 
And since you live in the same country at the same time, they probably are happening to you. Yeah. And the second is like it, that we are exempt. So, but Dr. Kuzma, right. don't you understand that um, because we are orthodox, what you're saying just can't be true? Yeah. Right. And that's, that's a confusion of orthodoxy with sinlessness. Orthodoxy, giving right glory to God, understood as meaning believing and confessing and practicing true doctrine, biblical doctrine, divine doctrine. Orthodoxy is not the same thing as being exempt from temptation. So when you want to look at somebody else's story and you say, well, we don't have ordination of women, or we're never going to have ordination of women, or we don't have whatever it is. And you know what? If you know enough about enough of the now 5,800, four years ago, it was something like 6,100, maybe 6,200 congregations in the LCMS, and you think it's not happening, <laughs> I'm not, I'm going to bet against you and maybe you'll win, but I bet you generally won't win. That if I'm betting that, well, it's happening in this Methodist church or it's happening in this UCC church or it's happening in this Roman Catholic church. And you say, well, it's not happening in one of our churches. I'm going to bet in one of those churches, something like it or it is actually happening. Right. And that's not cynicism. That's a statement that orthodoxy is not the same thing as being exempt from the same temptations. So if you see it going on in a UCC church or a Roman Catholic church, just take women serving in the church and on the books, we're not supposed to do it or not do it that way or whatever. The reason that some of us are doing it that way, just like the UCC or the Roman Catholic Church, is because we have the same mass confusion over what men and women are, mm -hmm. which we had before transgenderism was public and publicly celebrated, right, to be clear. So when when we're saying, well, we're going to be exempt because we're not like that, or that's not our story, or whatever, what you're really saying is there is a point at which we exited history. Now, that's a selling point for gullible converts to all kinds of churches. I mean, that's usually the selling point. If you want to become Roman Catholic, well, now you have a rock that you can rest secure on and nothing's going to happen right, to this right, church right. and it's going to endure. Eastern Orthodoxy, we haven't changed anything since like Justinian, Ever. you know, or whatever. Like it's, it's exemption. Exemption from history is exemption from temptation. And that would be to say we have never changed because nothing has happened to us because we are now sinless. Like, like it doesn't start, we're going to get hate mail for this comment. It doesn't start <laughs> like the devil sneaks into your bedroom at night and whispers, you know what? The vicarious atonement doesn't make theoretical sense. That's not how it happens. Right. It happens because you got a gold mama that you want to keep in place somewhere or you like your retirement plan or at the very least you just like your paycheck. And so you're not going to say this or that to this or that person, even though the Bible says so. And yeah. then 40 years later, or your grandkids are like, ah, the carries atonement who needs it. Right. But it doesn't start there. You know, the, the temptation is to lovelessness, not to a lack of knowledge. I, something that I think, maybe we Lutherans are particularly prone to is a separation of doctrine from life that the specific purpose of which I understand that doctrine should be whole and entire 
and life is always imperfect because the work of the spirit is not completed in this life. Totally get it. But there is a continual interrelationship between the two, between what is believed and what is lived throughout the scriptures that when we neglect it, we are neglecting not only clear passages of scripture about testing oneself, but we're also neglecting the way that what we actually believe Mm -hmm. is expressed in life. Mm -hmm. So if we're not really able to discuss life, what is occurring, what we actually say, how we relate to each other, whatever, and critique those things, then we, we're going to end up believing falsely as well because it's not like the life remains hermetically sealed off from the teaching. So it's not just that certain, I think a lot of times Lutherans think, and this can be a very pharisaic line of thinking when pushed, but they often think, well, I don't want to do that because it gives the appearance that, for example, women share in the pastoral office or something. So I don't want women serving communion, whatever, right? And they're very worried about the appearance. And and I get that too. But the reason that that's pharisaic is that Pharisees are people who are unable to figure out what is going on underneath. They don't even recognize it in themselves. Yeah. So the way to get to things underneath is also to look at my life or my congregation's life or my church's life and look at what is actually occurring. And then I can see, for example, that the temptations overtaking us are common. (laughs) They're common to man. They're also common to the other Christian churches where I am, where I live, going through the same kinds of things that I'm going through. They're common to the zeitgeist. And this, again, appropriately targeting the actual antichrist becomes kind of where this all goes for me. the um, I, I really love your willingness to tread right up to the proper distinction between doctrine and life and kind of gain us my astatikum all over the thing, um, because that, that is w- where we must exist in the election of God, that indeed life is messy, but the trust, call it faith alone, evoked by the word of God's doctrine, which isn't the local communities of Melanchthon, but the scriptures themselves alive and prayed and spoken. Uh, it, again, evokes a trust that is so bedrock and firm that the messiness of life cannot dissolve the love that flows from that trust and knowing that on judgment day, it's all coming back, man. It's all good. And and so, yeah, divorcing doctrine and life where doctrine is some kind of castle of glass we keep on a shelf and mine's cuter than yours, so I'm not sure about you, uh, from the place in which emboldened by the baptism uh you really do risk it like everything like just yeah, stop, stop living for the present or for the pre- present stop living for the future in this present life live for the present in the future life right i think that that divorce is what enables us to propagate the last myth and we'll just have to leave it as we get towards the end of the show here but the last myth that the reason that the main line has declined from such an absolutely enormous percentage of the American population to something, depending on who you read between 10 and 15 or 16%. And I would, I favor the lower number because I think some people don't understand what they're actually reporting when they report surveys and people like Missouri Synod Lutherans might be confused about what they are. A Christian Reformed Church might be confused and say that they're mainline sometimes and evangelical other times, and they get categorized as both. I'm going to go with maybe 10%. So you're talking about a decline from 
easily three-fourths to something like one-tenth of American Christians as the percentage of Christians of all kinds relative to the rest of the population goes down and down and down and down over that same hundred-year-long period. And when people look at that or when they look at an empty Episcopal church or a UCC church that got turned into a bar, whatever it was, they say, well, they got what they deserved. And that could be entirely true. And I think generally, I don't know all the stories of each of those seven sisters, but in the case of the Episcopal church, I know that's true. And in the case of the UCC, I know that's true. The problem there is that you're looking at the fall of the tower at Siloam and you're saying, that's not going to happen to me. So no worries. Unless you likewise repent, just wrote it down. Right. And I think that 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 is all that's sort of it's sort of another version. It's like the punitive version of we're exempt is that you're saying that something overtook a bunch of people. But because certain mistakes that they made, you did not make or you didn't make at the same time, like formal denial of the inerrancy of scripture. You didn't do that. okay? or you don't have a setup of entrance standards for your clergy that attracts a disproportionate number of gay men like the Roman Catholic church. So you don't have that problem. Okay, cool. The problem is Satan is more creative than that. And he will come at you in another way. I mean, you notice this in the gospels is that he comes at Christ openly once. And then eventually he figures out, well, if I enter into the heart of one of his disciples, and it's really cool, this little, I just wrote about this today, is that only John's gospel tells you that that Judas was continually stealing out of the money box. Yeah. Right? Satan realizes, well, if I can't do it openly, then I'll just do it through the heart of one of his disciples, through the love of money, which is, I think, for that reason, partly the root of all evil. So... If you say, well, we didn't do that, or no, we didn't ordain women in the 1970s, or whatever it is that you think was like the stopping point, you're taking your own life and saying that, like, basically you're dead because nothing can now touch you. So when we say that, you know, they got what they deserved, could be totally true. What if you get what you deserve? (laughs) right? Or what if the things that are happening to you are just like what's happening to them, what you deserved. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think repentance actually can start because that's because when you're actually repentant, you stop transferring blame or you stop being vague. You know, like when people are confessing their sins and sometimes they'll be really vague or they'll tell you why it's their mother's fault. And it's like, that's not the point of this exercise. The point of this exercise is for you to say, I have sinned. You can't really do that until you're able to identify your commonality with another sinner or group of sinners. What they did wrong could be what you did wrong or could be very similar to what you did wrong or could happen to you. So you need to watch out for it rather than saying, well, they got what they deserved and I'm not mainline, so I'm good to go. Yeah. So what you what you got in all of those is just a form of of stiff neckedness or high handedness that yeah. can can take shape, does take shape, has definitely taken shape uh, within the the history, the brand that is the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Um, we can call it a denomination. 
uh, if you want. We didn't quite get that far. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about fractions, it's a style. It's a tradition of Christianity. Uh, if you want to talk about bureaucracy, it's definitely an NGO. I know people don't like it when I talk that way, but what else is it? It's an NGO. Uh, and, and it is what it is. What does it do as an NGO? It's, right now, it's kind of a bank and a, uh, an insurance game, right? All those things. Um, does that mean it's evil? Not necessarily. Uh, but in a time in which uh, worship of the dollar is incredibly powerful, uh, does that mean it has the best interests of the church in mind? Well, usually the system that is running from the desk won't have the best interest of anybody in mind except the guy at the desk, right? And that's not the guy at the desk's fault. That's the way it is. And so, yeah, we, we face uh, a monstrous time in which uh, the, the powers that be and the foundations, the pillars of previous eras are being tested severely. And we can see where some of these places have already fallen to the ground. Yeah, and right. we have two options to sit here and say, well, <laughs> not going to happen to us. Or to say, dear Jesus Christ, please don't let that happen to us. And I don't even know what I got to repent of, but you let me know so that that doesn't happen to us. Right. And, yeah. and the, the distinction between those two paths is wide and narrow. It is. And if you walk past the ruins of Jerusalem and you're like, well, I'm glad that's not my holy city. <laughs> oh, dear God, Joseph. We got three minutes for next week. What's up? So, yeah, we'll set this up as I'm going to begin to talk about groups that are not mainline because that's the origins of what we call non-denominational but to set it up this way is that if you don't have a dominance by a variety of denominations in American history, you're never going to get anything called non-denominational because it's kind of a useless term unless you have denominations as the dominant form of Christianity. Otherwise, it doesn't tell you much. And you could even say, well, non-denominational just basically means Baptist, but it doesn't because there are Baptist denominations. So if you want to identify theological commonalities, that's fine, but they also have theological commonalities with Methodism and in certain strange forms with Lutheranism. So what you're actually dealing with is something defined by its lack of organization, which because of certain changes that we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, will become a strength as institutions of all kinds begin to suffer, not first financially, that's how we think about it now. Denominations are struggling, giving is down, membership is down. But first they begin to suffer theologically. And then later on, once certain demographic changes hit American society, they begin to suffer numerically, financially, and so on. But in talking about those theological changes, or you could go read the story of any one of the seven sisters we mentioned today, what you're looking at is something that you have to realize if you're looking at American history in the correct proportion is actually the majority story. 70%, 75%. This is most people. So where are they supposed to be? They probably should be in one of those seven churches if they were doing what their great grandparents were doing. They're not. So what can replace it or what tries to supplant it? And that's that's where we'll go. But it's all going to be defined by all of this stuff that went away. Let me suggest that the methodologist succeeded in making Gnostics out of all of us, and it's high time we repent. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here.
The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.